This show is brought to you by CIUT Studios and made possible thanks to our friends at Metal Supermarkets. Metal Supermarkets is here to provide the solutions you need. Visit them at metalsupermarkets.com. Program on social and political thought. He's taught at several universities. He's written in Saturday Night, Literary Review of Canada, Globe and Mail, National Post, and Haaretz, among others. David, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you, Sherry. I'm glad to be here. So um, I'm just going to read uh, a quote. and uh, But first, before I do, one question that I haven't heard anybody deal with, and it's a military question, and you had that background, so I'm going to ask you, is um, the, sh- the shocking uh, attack by Hamas on civilians. Uh, how did that even happen uh, when Israel seems so fortified? You know, there was... Uh uh, a lot of Israel. There were a lot of Israelis that asked that same question, and I've asked Israeli friends, including people that were in the army, and there's no one answer. So you know, it's possible to imagine soldiers, you know, sitting on a quiet front, being kind of lackadaisical. You know, there's a. It was a holiday. You know, I'm too tired. I know the observational balloons went down, but I'll 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 fix it tomorrow. You know, I've been there. You know, when when you sit day after day in a routine and in and in, in, in a quiet front, you sort of go a bit mechanical and a bit lazy. So that's one one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is is simply that. Uh, the chain of command was disrupted in part because the political process was disrupted. And so, you know, the, there weren't enough eyes on the street. People were involved in other things. It's also true that on the Gaza front, the number of soldiers was minimal. You know, many, many had been moved to other fronts. And, you know, the West Bank, it was a priority of the government. And Gaza, they kind of, that 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 particular right-wing government wanted Gaza just to go away. And they, in a lot of ways, they, they treated it as if it had gone away already, and it hadn't. You know, so those are three. And, you know, the fourth one was was, was sort of hinted at by Ronan Bergman in the uh, in New York Times on Sunday. And he said, well, there may be spies inside the IDF that actually lent a hand there. Now, it's too early to, to say anything like that. There will be a, a commission in Israel, you know, of course, and certain heads will necessarily fall. We don't quite know how, how that will devolve. Um, and it's sort of a wait and see till the final word comes through. Now, one of the points that you had mentioned uh, prior to the show was uh, about the situation in Israel, which I think paint us a picture of what was going on in Israel when Hamas actually attacked. Well, I think it was the 43rd or 44th week of protest against an extremely right-wing government. And, you know, we don't, again, we don't know how that would have developed, you know, but there was a, there was a chance that... There would be finally a something like a constitution in Israel, which actually w- may have been favorable to um, the, the occupied territories. Uh, that may not have happened. But in any case, Israel was very fragmented and in ways that we have never seen. You know, in my day, when we tried to organize a protest because something had happened to the Palestinians, usually, there were four and a half people out in the street. You know, we never had to order a large pizza. You know, medium was was plenty, you know. But here we had hundreds of thousands of people out there. And, you know, it has to be said that the issue was internal to Israel. And it was, you know, they tried to keep the Palestinian issues out, out of, but... In the final analysis, it, it it would have impacted the 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 occupy the occupied territories in the West Bank, but also Gaza, and I you know I was really sad that that, that process was interrupted. I mean, aside from the devastation, you know, and the horrible horrible uh, uh, um, you know uh, consequences of that incursion, it was just too bad that that process was interrupted. Uh, here, uh, here, listening to the Radical Reverend Show, very live on CIUT 89.5 FM. want to thank right up front Allison Riley for being the great techs that they are. Um, we have as our guest for the first half of the show, David Berlin, uh, none better to speak about the situation in Israel, Palestine, uh, has been there, um, was in the IDF, um, started the walrus, uh, and, uh, and 
a, a good, probably one of the best observers. Um, David, I want to read a quote. Uh, this I'm taking. I'm taking all these quotes from social media, which of course has. Uh, just erupted since this began. Uh, it's a Yasmin Mohammed who wrote, uh, too many people can't tell the difference between innocent Palestinian people and terrorists like Hamas. Stop conflating the two. You're not helping. I have family in Gaza. They hate Hamas. They are not torturing women and parading their dead bodies through the streets. That is evil. Differentiating between us and them should not be difficult. Comments. Well, you know, I would say off the top that a crisis is not the time to take sides, period. You know, when you take sides in a crisis, all you do is you spread the virus. You know, you could take sides before, afterwards, but here, each of these events, the Hamas incursion, the, 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 the Israeli response, and, and, and the occupation in general, you know, should be treated as discrete issues for the time of the crisis, you know, otherwise, really, you know, what we're seeing and where we are seeing already is, is all kind of violence against Arabs and Jews, in, in, not in Israel, but in the United States and here in Canada. I think there was something yesterday as well. Um, so that, that is how the, the virus spreads. In a crisis, you do not take sides. That's number one. Number two, for Canadians, if they are to take sides, then it has to be with non-combatants. And I mean by that is to pressure the government to send our, our Navy there to help, you know, to, to help get non-combatants, children, you know, this fellow's relatives, you know, out of, out of harm's way. We just don't need to see more bloodshed of innocent people who are just stuck there. We're just stuck there, and of course that, that would require certain certain uh, concessions from Israel, which controls the, the the waterways and what have you. But my feeling is that Israel w would give it. So, I mean, th th that's how I comment. Uh, absolutely true. There is a difference between between uh, uh, Palestinians in Gaza and Hamas. Only thirty percent of Palestinians supported Hamas, and there hasn't been an election in, in Gaza since 2007, and even that election was, was strange. I mean, it was not clear who really won. But it's also true that in Israel, you know, many, many Israelis do not support the, the occupation, do not support uh, the government for sure. And remember that in Israel there's 34 parties. So when, when you get, when, when you form a government, it's you maybe have you know 35 36 percent of the population which is uh, of the vote which is what what uh, um, Bibi Netanyahu received and then you have to put together a coalition and that's what we're seeing now here's another quote um, speaking here on the Radical Revenue Show to David Berlin uh, Avi Lewis uh, known to most Canadians uh, wrote the fog of war lies thick all around but here's one thing I know I'm just appalled, appalled by what Hamas unleashed in the slaughter of civilians' homes, drenched in terror, appalled by Israel's government on a rampage of revenge, publicly announcing war crimes, appalled by how some sectors of the left are celebrating vengeance, playing right into the hands of right-wing Zionists and others who weaponize anti-Semitism, appalled by how rich countries are reverting to simple-minded, one-sided Israel right or wrongism, the dead and the rubble piling up in Gaza are the bitter fruit of the cynical, simple-minded worldview. Comments. Well, it definitely is not the um, best managed planet that I've been to recently. <laughs> you know that that is absolutely for sure. You know, and uh, um, I mean, appalled is you know is, is for me even a mild uh, a, a, a mild reaction. I mean, you know, I know people that were at that rave, and I know I, I have a good friend whose son uh, was at the rave, and three of his kids, three of his friends were shot in front of him, and he somehow was in the bushes and somehow got out. But, you know, you look at, at faces, you know, in Gaza. You, you, you want, yesterday I watched a, um, a, a video of these young men begging their own authorities to go into an apartment that was 
scheduled to be bombed. Just And they were saying, listen, our entire lives are there. You know, our photos of our grandparents, the only ones we have, let us go in for 10 minutes. And the authority and the authority was saying, no, you cannot go in there. This, this, this apartment building is about to be bombed. And they're begging. And in the midst of all this thing, you see, you hear the bomb go, and, you know, it's the, the building starts to collapse. And you're just... I mean, appalled is not the right word. I mean, you're fighting your tears back. You know, you, you just can imagine that this, that these people are sitting there watching their lives dissolve in front of them. And similarly, you know, in Israel, I mean, kids come to a rave, you know, and you, you, you hear a young lady say, listen, we were all wasted, you know, which reminds me of, you know, my, my grandchildren now, not my children, my children kind of are upstanding already. But, you know, the, you know, we're wasted, 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 you know. And then she tells you that she hid in the uh, bushes for six hours watching people, watching her friends being shot. I mean, appalled, as they say, is, is, is mild. Yeah. Um, speaking here to David Berlin. And now we have a situation. Um, and also, of course, we know that about 50% of Gazans are under the age of 18. Um, uh, I, I tend to look to Doctors Without Borders that are active in Gaza right now, um, Médecins Sans Frontières, which is the international version, and um, they're operating without painkillers. They're saying they're ru- they've run out of painkillers, but aid from Egypt seems to be stuck. Um, maybe comment on like getting the aid in there because you know, even Israel is saying this isn't supposed to be a war against the populace. This is supposed to be a war and, against And there the has mass. been negotiations with the mm-hmm. Israeli government and who, with the authorities there to get some generators in, even as electricity is, is being blocked, you know, to get generators into the hospitals, to get water uh, to people. There, there, is, there are, you know, a whole bunch of NGOs, including the Red Cross, is operating certainly in Rafah, which is in the south part of Gaza, you know, um, but the truth is that Gaza was up for a Marshall Plan type rebuilding 50 years ago. You know, I, I, I spent almost a year walking around in Jabalia, which is the uh, refugee camp just north of Gaza City. And, you know, you walk around there. And you th- you keep thinking like how I mean how how you know I, I have a problem when they have construction on Blur Street you know uh, this place is half devastation half you know construction and it's that it, there's the, the the waste is not is not properly taken you know it, after that gets to you after not a long time and you just feel like you know screw this I you know, I can't live like this so you know they rebuilt Europe after. Uh, um, the, the, the Second World War, Dresden was even worse than Gaza is now, and it's a, it, it's, it's a tourist place now. I mean, that has to happen at some point. And then, of course, you know, th- that, that's only a first step. So talk, let's talk about the backdrop to this. And I mean, you've been there, you've been on the ground, you've seen it, you've lived it. Um, uh, I mean, often you hear commentators, um, well, not often enough, I suppose, but say, you know, um, you know, the, the military solution is not the solution here. It's a political solution that we need, ultimately. What is the, what do you think is the political solution? Well, Sherry, you know, I, I'm different than most people, you know. I mean, you know, I, I look at the military solution and I go, no, that's not going to work. And I look at the diplomatic solution and I think, no, that's not going to work either. And, and partially I think that the, the um, bombing in Gaza is almost at proof that a two-state solution cannot work at this point. And I'll tell you why. Because as far as I know, the, the IAF, the Israeli Air Force, has never bombed the West Bank, certainly not in the way that it, that, that it is bombed. And that's because in Israel's view, you know, the West Bank is its territory. And the Gaza legally is also considered by the international community as its territory, but Israel does not agree. Israel says in 2005, when we marched out of there, that became a sovereign country. Therefore, when there is an incursion of the kind that, that, that Hamas just propagated, we can declare war. You cannot declare war on your own territory. Now, again, 
that there is a dispute between the international community and the Israeli authorities. Yeah. Uh, um, so, so, so if not to state? So, so you know, again, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I emphasize the fact that, that I have my own view here. And my view is that if there's, any, if there's anything like a long-term strategy, it's got to begin with a rapprochement between religious leaders. I, I think that even though Israel itself is is secular to a degree, it, it's it's become less secular over the years, you know. Um, but Hamas is definitely Hamas has declared that Israel, Lebanon, Syria is all a waqf, and a waqf is a land land piece, a piece of land that is consecrated for. Islam for the mosque usually, you know, that, that's where uh, uh, an imam would grow his sustenate, sustaining, uh, his sustaining uh, fruit. But that is all radical Islam. And what, you, what I'd like to hear is, I'd like to, I'd like to hear both the, the Israeli rabbis, you know, the chief rabbi uh, Lau and the, 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 the uh, Sephardic rabbi Yosef, and, you know, Ali Sistani from the from the uh, um, from the the Shia side and, um, and and the Sunni Sunni side as well, you know, sort of first of all declare their own horror, but secondly, I'd like to see four men. Yeah, unfortunately, it is men, Sherry. Four men locked into a room and say, "Listen, get over it. Come out with some joint statement. Some again." I'm a dreamer a bit, you know. So I think it would be really nice if Rabbi Lau said to Ali Sistani, listen, you know, we're really sorry that our patriarch Abraham chased Ishmael out of his household. And and we think that our scribes got it wrong when they when they said that God said that that you should that to Abraham take your one son, your only son, to the Moriah. This was not his only son. Ishmael was also Abraham's son. I'd like to see, you know, Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi Lau, you know, apologize for that and say, listen, you know what, we'll do something. We'll do something. But begin with an apology and start, you know, start thinking, you know, Arabs and Jews are cousins. They're both Semites. There's so much that is common between these two religions. Unlike Christianity, for example, you know, in, in Islam, the, 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 the imam and the rabbis are, do not represent, you know, God. They, rep, that they are on the ground. They are, you know, with the people. And similarly, Sharia law and the Talmud, you read these two the, the two tracts, which are law, you know, there's civil law, they are so similar, you know, that there is so many parallels. It's almost crazy, you know, it's almost crazy that these, that these two people don't say, listen, that, that we are cousins. And believe me, when I was in the Army, you know, when, when there was problems, we'd always say, our cousins are giving us trouble again. That's, that, that was, you know, talk a, on a daily basis. Oh, no, our cousins, you know, our crazy aunt or this or that. And, and there was an underscoring of the relation between these two people, which I think over time, you know, has unfortunately abated. Yeah, uh, speaking here to David Berlin, um, uh, my go-to person for anything uh, Palestine-Israeli, uh, founder of the Walrus Magazine, um, writer for Haaretz to uh, the New York Times, uh, and uh, and actually served in the IDF, um, knows his stuff. Um, uh, religious leaders coming together, and I, and I also want to throw into the mix, of course, because there are Palestinian Christians, quite a lot of them, um, and they, uh, Ilya Shatur, who I met, um, there are bishops and archbishops there who have issued a statement calling for peace, um, immediate ceasefire. Um, immediate ceasefire, is that something we should be all calling for? Again, ask me the question, I sort of... Uh, is immediate ceasefire something that we should all be calling for, something that our, all of our government should be calling of for? Of course. Of course. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's, it's hard to imagine, although I can tell you that having read some of the recent Israeli 
social media really you know that there are that there are israelis in the army and and around uh, um around the social media in israel that are claiming that going into gaza at the moment is a trap uh, you know i i i've read and it's been circulated uh social media has been circulating saying look they're going to walk in there hamas is going to wait for a couple hundred thousand soldiers and they're going to blow the whole thing up they are either going to be in the tunnels underground or you know many of them are reconciled to the notion of shaheed which is a martyr um and you know, this could be the biggest disaster we've ever seen. So that's on the military side, you know, and, and I'm not quite sure why Israel has not yet, you know, deployed ground ground troop, but this may be one of the things that they're looking at. And, you know, there's just no way, there's just no way that um, an incursion of any sort is going to rid the problem once and for all. It's just not going to happen. I mean, even if they got every single Hamas leader, you know, this uh, it, it, the conditions will create new Hamas in a different form. Um, here's another quote, uh, David, uh, again, pulled off social media. Um, he, this was a brother of a murdered Israeli who wrote, an indigenous person he's Canadian, reached out to commiserate, and as do I, call for peace now. The struggle for land rights must not be a violent one, even if it is a just one. I oppose the actions of my government, and I mourn my sister murdered by the hate of Hamas. Um, I'm sure that's not an unusual position. We see these huge outpourings in the streets, and of of Jews saying, not in my name. You know, again, um, I, I, I think that to focus on alternative solutions to this thing is actually more important than the, the call for peace. The call mm-hmm. for peace just somehow floats around in the air, and uh, and, and you know, and, and 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 you know, nobody pays much attention to it. But as I say, I mean, for Canadians, I think it's important to to, to focus on non-combatants, on getting aid there, on getting generators to to more generators to the hospitals, uh, on getting people out. You know, and on the ensuing Marshall Plan that rebuilds Gaza in a way that 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 is that is sustainable for life, you know, and working from there one step at a time, make Gaza inhabitable, you know, for for one thing. So I think the call for peace is always, you know, on the mark. But you know, unless it is somehow uh, couched with re- with real alternatives. It, it it just disappears, you know? Yeah. Hear you. I think we all hear that very clearly right now. Um, I want to circle back to, you said, too late for the two-state solution. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the calls has been, in a sense, a one-state solution. You know, everybody has a vote. Um, uh, possible? Again, I, I, I think... You know, we have to take this thing one step at a time. Right. You know, but the proper step, you know, the, not 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 a step like the first step of Oslo, for example. So there were promises to, to to dismantle at least rogue settlements in the West Bank and some of the larger settlements, and that the Israeli government n- never did that. You know, and it was fraught right from the beginning. But to take proper and thoughtful steps, one step at a time, and to see the, the accomplishment there, and to move from there, and to let the, those steps guide us from here to there, is probably more pragmatic than than seeing a final solution. You know, one state, two states. You know, uh, uh, no states. You, you know, United States. Yeah, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I just think go one one step at a time. Do it well. Do it thoughtfully. Have all eyes on the street, and let that lead us to the next step. That, that's my approach. As you as you were speaking, I couldn't help but thinking a little bit. I've got Irish in my background of the Northern Ireland situation. Um, again, on the surface, religious, you know, Protestants against Catholic cousins too. Finally, and and 
you know, somebody who was closer there said it was the women that stopped it. I, I, I just this is just kind of feminist view, but the women got out and said enough. You know, we're tired yeah. of burying our brothers and our husbands and our, our sons. Um, you know, enough. Stop. I, it. I think that's that that's interesting, uh, Sherry, and yeah, uh, I think it's interesting for a, 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 another reason, which is that you know, in Gaza, um, there is Hamas which is really a political uh, organization, and there is the Al-Qasim Brigades. And their relation is very much like the IRA to the Sinn Féin. And it's not necessarily the case that, that the IRA listens to, 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 to what the political arm says, nor is it necessarily the case that the Al-Qasim Brigades listen to Hamas. Now, Hamas claims now uh, that it quietened everything down for two years in order to deceive the Israelis. I don't believe it. My, my, my own feeling is that there is lots and lots of dissonance within, within Hamas, that is to say, between Hamas and Al-Qasim brigades. And I'm not even so sure that Hamas knew exactly what was going on there and what the plan is. You know, another thing that's always said is, well, they planned this for a year. You know, the truth is that they are always planning. Since 1987, they've been planning. You know, and they planned this and they planned that and they have this model and that model. I, you know, I've seen them. And it just so happens, and for various reasons, which, you know, you can only speculate about, uh, that, that they, they decided to implement this particular uh, plan. But they're always planning. So it's not quite true to say, well, they planned it for a year. How did, how did that get uh, uh, past the Israeli intelligence? As I say, you know, they're doing it and they're always doing it. In the same way that, you know, if, God forbid, the, uh, um, the radical, is, uh, radical orthodoxy in Israel managed to, in some way, I don't want to say destroy, but harm the Al-Aqsa Mosque, you know, you could say, well, they planned this, you know, for X amount of time. But the truth is they've been planning it, you know, since at least since 67, if not since forever. So everybody's planning everything, and it's not quite clear that, 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 that this particular plan was very different than, you know, the, the rote way of behaving a, a, a political question, and we don't know how it's going to end and uh, early, sadly, early days, maybe, um, of all of this. But um, do you think uh, Netanyahu will survive? Do uh, I think? Do, do you think Bibi will survive after all of this? I certainly hope not. Um, <laughs> I it, really do. And, and then on the Israeli side of things, who? It, where's the hope there politically? Where? Who would you vote for? I can tell you who I voted for. No, I, no, I can't. It's a, it's a secret ballot. I'm not going to tell you that. But, um, but I, I think you know, uh, uh, I'm actually watching Lapid stay out of the coalition with a certain amount of respect. I didn't always, you know, hold for Lapid. You know, he he is who he is. Uh, but uh, both Gans and Eisenkot are, you know, both were, were chief of staffs in Israel. And Gans, who now joined the coalition, was famous for, for boasting how many Palestinians he's killed. And Eisenkot, um, is his big idea was disproportional um, uh, attack. Did this, 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 you know, when, when you react, you react disproportionately. So these two guys are now part of Bibi's coalition, you know, and... Psh, that 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 is it, it is not a happy situation. I you know I I think that uh, Bibi lost a lot of credibility here. You know he was always able to say, "Listen, I protected you. I've kept the security," and now he cannot he can no longer say it. On the one hand, on the other hand, I think he got you know several months grace here by this you know very incursion because you know the protests were getting were 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 were, were not ceasing. And his impending judgment, you know, his standing in front of the courts was not going away. That's that's gone away for a while. So, you know, if I were BB, uh, I think I would have, I would step down at the end of this thing and saying thank you very much. It was uh, fun, and uh, and I'm out of here. And um, and then we have to see. 
Uh, speaking here again to David Berlin. Uh, David, final words. Uh, we just have a minute um, before we're going to go to break. But um, Naomi Klein, uh, I thought, had kind of the best. I'm going to just paraphrase what she said um, when she wrote for The Guardian. And she said, uh, you know, where there is a child up against a person with a gun, we will always be on the side of the child, no matter who holds the gun and no matter absolutely. who the child is. So I mean, absolutely. You know, that that, that that's the same idea as... as you know, I'm talking about when I say non-combatants. It's not only a child, but of course a child first. But there's many, many people who just want to live their lives. And our, our, our sympathies have to go there. And our, uh, and our, you know, and our help has to go in that, in that direction. Thank you so much, David Berlin, for shedding some light on a dark area. Um, and uh, yes, peace be with you. <laughs> With you too, Jerry. <laughs> we're going to go for a bit of a break now, and we're going to come back with um, former MP Peggy Nash. Uh, she is a uh, an Order of Canada winner and author of a book about uh, women getting elected, uh, and she will be on. So do stay tuned. And welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. I'm your host, Sherry DeNovo. And in case you were wondering, that is the West Eastern Devon Orchestra. And uh, and they're an orchestra made up playing Beethoven um, of Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, and now, of course, we're going to shift gears a little bit here on the Radical Reverend Show. Not unusual for us. Uh, and welcome uh, former MP Peggy Nash. Peggy, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Hello, Sherry. Glad to be here. Uh, so just in, in, by way of introduction, um, Peggy, uh, Order of Canada recipient. Um, she was the critic for finance uh, at one point in the opposition, um, ran for leadership of the NDP as well, uh, and has written a book about for women on how to get elected. So do pick that up when you get a chance. Uh, Peggy, 
the NDP convention just happened in the midst of everything. <laughs> um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the NDP uh, met in person for the first time in five years, if you can believe it. Uh, pandemic intervening, of course. And uh, I-, I was only able to attend on Saturday, but uh, some delegates attended Friday. Uh, that's when the convention started, and it wrapped up Sunday. And um, several hundred delegates. Um, debated resolutions, uh, many dozens of resolutions from across the country, and uh, heard from a number of speakers, David Eby, Premier of British Columbia, Wab Kanu, a newly elected, Premier-elect in Manitoba, Marit Stiles, leader of the opposition in Ontario, um, and Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath. So they had... uh, uh, a number of speakers and some very impassioned debate on some uh, key and important issues, and uh, heard, of course, from the federal leader Jagmeet Singh. And there was a leadership review, which is required at every NDP convention. So that's the broad stroke. Yeah. Now, if, if let's start with the leadership review. Eighty-one percent. Um, uh, is that good? <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, it's better than Tom Mulcair, who got less than 50%. <laughs> D- so definitely I'm, there, definitely yeah, there. Um, if I'm, if yeah. I'm seeing, I'll take that as a win. But uh, certainly many in the media remarked that this was less than the 87% he got last time, less than the over 90% he got when he was first elected. Um and I, you know, in, in my view, it reflects a couple of things. I think there is uh, real frustration with the supply and confidence agreement that people want more, faster. And that really came through in the debate led by uh, MP and, and health critic Don Davies on Pharmacare. Uh, people, you know, they were basically saying, listen, you know, we understand that you're in this agreement, but let's have more to show for it. So uh, I think that is part of it. And the other part is just a real frustration with the liberal government. And, uh, of course, conservatives are saying you're just propping up this liberal government. They talk about it as a coalition which it is not, uh, but there, there is, you know, real disappointment with the Liberals. And, um, you know, Singh is saying, well, if we were government, we would be much, much better, we would do much more. Um, but I, I think those two things together, supply and confidence agreement and kind of where we are in this uh, uh, liberal government have have created disappointment and frustration. So the supply and confidence arrangement, um, just ex- it, like people out there in listener led might not know what that means. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so just uh, maybe explain that. Yeah, I think it's actually, I think I've got the words backwards. It's confidence and supply. And confidence means that the NDP has agreed to express confidence, vote in favor of the Liberal government on what are called confidence votes. Confidence votes are things like the budget or other critical pieces of legislation, which if the government didn't get its a minority government, meaning they don't have enough votes on their own to pass budgets or other key bills, and uh, the NDP has agreed to support them, vote in favor i.e. keep the government in power in exchange for supply, and supply being uh, things like um, uh, pharmacare bill, dental care, um, banning strike breakers, uh, making housing more affordable. There were a number of pieces that were in uh, this was a quid pro quo, that the NDP would support the Liberal government 
if in exchange they enacted pieces of the NDP agenda, which the liberals were not going to just do on their own. So the NDP was trying to force them to do uh, NDP-like supplied bills. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, the NDP really doesn't have much power. They're the fourth party in the House after the liberals, the conservatives, and after the bloc, Quebecois. So they're the fourth party. But they used the, the bit of leverage they had on those votes that could take the liberals over the top and, and in essence give them a majority. They used that to try to extract the gains, which is exactly what Tommy Douglas did uh, decades ago and what got us Medicare. So Singh is trying to replicate the Medicare achievement by creating Denticare and Pharmacare. Now, the the dental care um, agreement has been criticized in some quarters as being not, mm-hmm. I mean, the hope was that this would be you present your OHIP card, you get dental care. Exactly. Um, that is not what it is. Um, mm-hmm. Was there some concern expressed about that at the convention? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I think that absolutely fair because it's um, it's uh, a limited uh, care it's available only for some groups and it's um, yeah it's not easy to access it's not like Medicare where you just show up you get the service and it's covered um, so yes there were real concerns about that and it became expressed through the Pharmacare goal, basically saying we want Pharmacare to be like Medicare, that it should be universal, pays, it's public and uh, available throughout the country. So um, uh, I think people recognize the, the limitations in the dental care bill. And again, you know, Sherry, you know me, I'm a former union negotiator, and I understand that in bargaining, you don't always achieve what you want or what you believe you should get, but you you achieve what is possible at a given point in time. And I mean, I wasn't in any of these rooms, but I can only surmise that this is what the dental care agreement was what was possible at a given point in time. But we're at a different point in time now. The liberals are no longer high in the polls and, uh, in fact, chomping at an election, which they were a couple of years ago. Uh, I think they don't want an election right now because if there were one, uh, the liberals would likely lose power. So that gives the NDP more power to be able to bargain something better. And that's what delegates were saying. Let's get, we've got a a, a little window right now. Let's get Pharmacare done once and for all, like every other advanced country in the world that has Medicare, for God's sakes, let's allow people to be able to get the drugs they're prescribed through our Medicare system so that they can stay healthy, and stay out of the the hospital system. Uh, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to Peggy Nash, um, former MP um, and, uh, and finance critic, author, recipient of the Order of Canada, general, uh, generally all-round great gal, right? <laughs> I thought you were going to say all-round. Can I say that on your, on your program? <laughs> I just did. Yeah, all-round great gal. <laughs> um, speaking about the NDP convention, and uh, and there there um, there was ca- some kerfuffle around the Israel-Palestine. I mm-hmm. I just don't I don't know if you heard it, but the first half of the the show, Peggy, we had David Berlin on, um, founder of the Walrus, former um, member of the IDF. Uh, 
and uh, but very tempered, uh, wonderful voice. It's written for Herats and, and New York Times and others um, on what's what's going on over there. Um, and basically, you know, his his uh, sur- surmise was, you know, now is the time to focus on you know, non-combatants, getting people to safety, getting people the aid they need, uh, ceasefire, yes. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, so, uh, um, and this is from a former military guy. Um, So, so what was your take on all of that? What, what was the end result of that at the convention? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, some people were very concerned that the initial package of resolutions did not contain anything about the attack on Israel or what was happening in Gaza. And that was because the deadline for resolutions, of course, occurred long before uh, the attack, I guess almost a week and a half ago now. So uh, events occur as they do, and you have to adapt. And so there there was an emergency resolution on um, the Israel-Palestine conflict. And um, while Jagmeet Singh was speaking, and I was actually completely unaware of this because I was in the hall listening to Singh, but at that same time, outside the hall, there was a protest of, uh, I don't know, I've heard between, you know, 15 and 30 people who were on and I don't want to, I, I, I'm not sure, but I think it was more of a pro-Palestinian uh, rally or protest. I'm not sure whether they were trying to influence uh, the position for the final resolution, the emergency resolution. I'm unclear. But that ended up in a bit of a scuffle. Uh, but as I say, I was I was kind of unaware of it because I was with most people inside the hall. Uh, but people have the ability to protest. That's how we get our views across. So that was happening. There was a resolution debated during the emergency resolutions later on Saturday, and uh, it condemned both the Hamas attack and the siege of Gaza, and it focused, I think, on the humanitarian aspect of it, uh, calling for a ceasefire, um, investigating war crimes, uh, calling for the release of the hostages, um, and urging, uh, you know, something more forward-looking, building of of peace, and I think probably advocating, I don't think it said two-state solution, but looking longer-term which seems uh, really hard to envision at this particular point, as uh, the this iron belt seems to grow tighter and tighter around uh, Palestinians in Gaza. So it's um, it's on a, it's in a situation right now that's evolving daily. Now we know that uh, President Biden is going to visit tomorrow, uh, going to visit Israel tomorrow. So I would even though there are bombings taking place daily in Gaza, I would be surprised if a siege took place, you know, a major attack, ground assault took place before that visit. But at the same time, people are running out of food, water, power. I heard an interview with a Palestinian doctor who said he's looking after 40 infants in the neonatal unit and if they don't have power that those infants will all die so there's so many awful dire situations and i think i uh, i didn't hear the earlier interview but i agree that the focus at this moment needs to be on humanitarian aid and revenge is the anger is understandable but it's never justifiable to seek revenge on civilian population. A, a war crime, in effect. Um, mm. So, it, you're you know you're a seasoned politico. You've been there. You've you've been in parliament. <laughs> you you've so seen it, it all. Um, <laughs> do you think? I mean, overall, I mean, you know, the, the the there's been criticism that again we're not 
moving in the NDP fast enough federally on issues that, you know, things like um, things that I've heard that people say that could have been negotiated for things like the guaranteed livable income, um, dramatic legislation like that. Um, and uh, and this is against, and you pointed it out, and, and it's certainly true and slightly terrifying for folk, um, that we're looking at, if you believe the polls of the moment, a Poiliev majority government. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this conservative party is not the conservative party that I grew up with. Um, this is set, looks increasing like Republicans North. And, um, and people are genuinely scared about that. And you and I know very well that, that fear does not make for good politics uh, and good decisions at, at the polling booth. Um, yeah. uh, so in terms of the NDP's chances in the, an election that's going to be, you know, not too far away either way, right? Like a year and a bit, right? Um, where, what should we be doing in, in the federal NDP? Um, what aren't we doing if you were if you were leader, what would you do, Peggy Nash? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one thing I, I did not mention with the uh, pharmacare motion was that basically um, delegates delegates passed a resolution calling on the NDP to get the Pharmacare Act done by the end of this year. Now it's non-binding. These resolutions, you know, ultimately the party doesn't have to act on them. But, I mean, this resolution was led by Don Davies, who's a health critic. So if there isn't a Pharmacare Act by the end of the year, and the direction of the delegates was to pull support from the supply and confidence, confidence and supply agreement. So we'll see what happens there. Um, I, I just wrote... Uh, trying to answer your question, I just wrote an article for the Hill Times basically saying that what Pierre Polyev is doing, and I know him well, I was in the House when when he was first elected. Um, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's a sincere believer who is being given advice about how to win power. And make no mistake, this is about them winning power. They are advocating, supposedly, that they're the friend of the working class, that they're the, you know, they're the friend of of parents uh, who are concerned about the education system. They're, you know, they're trying to target certain groups of voters to mobilize their vote so that the conservatives can win power. Once they get power, we saw it with Stephen Harper, we see it with Doug Ford, they clearly are not the friend of workers. Uh, They're in cahoots with people who are already very powerful, too powerful. Um, You'll never see Pierre Polyev on a picket line or supporting workers' rights, union rights. Um, And... But he, what he is doing extremely effectively is capturing people's frustration and their anger about the lack of affordability, their frustration with the liberal government. And I, I, what I wrote about in my column was saying, I, I think the best path for New Democrats, like I think people are, are kind of fed up with the liberals, whether they'll return to them in the next election, who knows. But what Singh and the NDP could do is also capture that frustration and anger, express how people are feeling, the language that people can relate to. But instead of Pierre Polyev's non-answers, non-solutions, to actually pose solutions that will make life better for people. But using a language that people can hear, I think people don't want platitudes, they don't want fluff, they're so sick of floppy liberal promises that never get fulfilled. I think they need, you know, using a language of every day that relates to people's lives and addresses the material needs of people now. I think that's what's important. And I think 
possible to do when I hear people like Don Davies speak or I hear Alexandre Boularis from Quebec. There are reasons why these MPs from different parts of the country keep getting themselves elected no matter which way the tide goes is because they organize, they connect with people in their daily lives, they express what they are feeling, and they express how they can make life better. But I think organizing is key. Language is important, but organizing is key. And I don't think you just organize at election time. You organize all the time. And that's, the, the, you know, it's not just social media. It's people talking to each other. It's going door to door. It's connecting with people where they're at. Not lecturing at them, but listening to them. I, I think that's how organizing has always happened. And I think that needs to happen more urgently now than ever. Uh, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show to Peggy Nash, former MP and uh, Order of Canada recipient, author among uh, union negotiators, as you heard, among many other things. We just have a few minutes left. Uh, one of the, um, just uh, being purely Machiavellian here and looking at the Polyev rise to power, <laughs> um, I, you know, one has to be impressed by exactly what you're talking about, um, Peggy, which is holding rallies, you know, listening, um, running around the country, um, using phrases like have-nots and have-yachts, which, quite frankly, you know, I, I wish would, were ours. <laughs> exactly. I, I agree. Very clever. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so, you know, um, so hopefully um, uh, those on the left take, take, you know, a page out of that book and get out there and listen to people, you know, in labor halls and church halls and, you know, um, wherever um, and, and, you know, use what you hear. But but you have to agree, Peggy, it's been kind of, you know, just as a purely, you know, campaign strategist, it's, it's been a pretty impressive campaign for, I would say, all the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you're, you're talking about the conservatives? Yes, campaign? yes, sadly. Yeah, they are, I mean, first of all, they're incredibly well resourced. They've got more money than everybody else put together. But you know, the creativity and the uh, easy phrase slogans, you know, just inflation, um, axe the tax. These are simple, easy to remember slogans. And they can be very, very effective. Um, I mean, there's no solutions involved in this. You know, okay, if you ask the carbon tax, so, you know, half the country was burning over this year, what's your solution? But it captures people's anger and frustration. So um, I think we've got to be smarter. I think we've got to be better organized and we'll never match them in terms of money or power. But surely, to goodness, we can match them with people power because uh, most people, they see what's in their best interest. If people connect with them, listen to them, and offer them the opportunity to get involved, to act in their best interest on the values they believe in. But that, that takes feet on the ground. It takes, it takes people getting involved. And I think there's a role for... All of us here. You know, it's interesting. Sherry, I don't know if you know this. You know Marshall Gantz? Mm -hmm, of course. Amazing yeah. organizer mm -hmm. in the States. He's coming to speak in Toronto on November the 1st for the Douglas Caldwell Layton Institute. And I've, I've studied with him. I Whenever I teach a course in leadership or politics, I refer to Marshall Gantz. If you don't know about him, look him up. He's incredible. And check out the Douglas Caldwell Layton Foundation and this upcoming event, because uh, this is a guy who organized with Cesar Chavez and the Great Boycott <laughs> way back. And frankly, he learned his initial organizing skills um, canvassing here in Canada uh, for David Lewis way back when, when he was leader of the NDP. Uh, but he's obviously refined and honed his skills since then. Anyway, he's somebody who... Uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and he, 
does not shy away from the hard nuts and bolts work of engaging one-on-one with people, which is how you begin to build movements. And I think we really, you know, the right wing seems to have the momentum, but we need to counter with an even stronger left-wing movement for change. We need progress, not going backwards. Thank you so much, Peggy Nash, former MP. And to you out there in listener land, thank you for being a part of this show. Um, It is on podcast afterwards. Uh, Give us a couple of days. We'll get it up um, and we'll get it out to you wherever you hear, whatever you hear, um, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, whatever. I want to thank everyone uh, for putting this show together and let me know what you think. Until next time on the Radical Reverend Show.